Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today I'll be talking to Dr. Cynthia Scott Dupree, and we'll be discussing the science that informs our understanding of the relationship between bees and neonics, a pesticide that the government of Ontario has recently made subject to new restrictive regulations. Cynthia is the Bayer Crop Science Chair in Sustainable Pest Management in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph. For the sake of full disclosure, I note that Bayer produces neonics. I also note that Cynthia is a well-published researcher in the broad area of pest management and in the specific area that we're going to discuss today. Cynthia, thanks for coming and joining me at Fair Talk. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're welcome. All right, so let's see if we can just kind of delve in. I'm not sure the best place to start, but maybe we'll just talk about neonics and try to break that down, and then we'll talk about bees, and then let's try to talk about the science. So we'll have okay. some of our terms. So neonicotinoids and then neonics, can we use those interchangeably? Uh, yes. Uh, neonics is much easier to say okay. than neonicotinoids or neonicotinoids or whatever you want to say. So let's just call them neonics. All right. Then even within neonics, there's three of them that are typically talked about, and they have pretty complicated names too. Is it important that we understand that there's more than one kind of neonic out there? There's certainly several different neonics, and there's actually different families of neonics. And within those families, their toxicity to bees can vary a lot. So again, just within the neonicotinoid or neonic family, it's complicated. But the ones they speak of most are imidacloprid, which has been around the longest. And I would dare say that most of the research studies that anyone wants to read on them has been focused on imidacloprid. And the second generation or newer neonics that are also seen talked about in in these research and and other articles are is clothianidin and thymothoxin but instead of just talking about those today i think we'll just talk in general about neonics okay but even in the headlines i i probably read i probably could have been referring to a study that was looking at a particular one of those neonics rather than all and that could be that could be important to yes, some of those that, differences. It's that true. Come out. They, they have different toxicities, but I think the more important thing here is to understand some of the basic characteristics of neonics mm. and how they're used in an agricultural setting. Um, for example, neonics can be used as a foliar, so they can be sprayed on a crop. They can be used in furrow, so they can be sprayed in the furrow when the seed's planted. They can be used as drenches, but more commonly, they're used as a seed treatment. And this is because neonics have a special characteristic. They're a group of systemic insecticides. And this means that when they're applied to the plant, um, they move upwards through the plant. So they're in all parts of the plant tissue. And in the sense that we're Today, talking about impacts on bees, what can also happen is that these neonics will then become concentrated in the reproductive parts of flowering plants, and that would be in things like um, the pollen and certainly also the nectar, because that's what bees will forage on. So you'll get residues moving to these sites, and that's the interface where these uh, beneficial insects can be exposed to the toxins. 
Right. Uh, just to step back a minute, um, you know, we think about bees providing honey, and they pro- also are an important pollinator, and that's an important input into agriculture production. But so is pest management, right? Certainly. I mean, since the plagues of Moses, uh, we know that mm-hmm. to have food, uh, we have to control pests. And so absolutely, neonics are an insecticide that do that. What came before? What would did, did, How long have neonics been around? Was there another pesticide that they replaced? Well, is that important to the story? I, I think agricultural pesticides as we know them today were introduced after the Second World War. A lot of the chemicals we now use in agriculture were developed as in terms of chemical warfare. And then afterwards, they, after the Second World War, they realized the, the potential use of them in agricultural applications. And so there's a, a whole raft of classes of um, insecticides specifically or pesticides that have been introduced over the years. Um, we won't get into those, but the more recently introduced group of, since about the 1990s, uh, early 1990s, would be the neonics. And as I say, the characteristic of systemicity or being systemic is quite unique to them. Um, I won't get into a description of the particular characteristics, but the fact that they move through the tissue is valuable. And another form of applying um, chemicals, pesticides to crops is seed treatments. And I think I should spend a bit of a time talking about seed treatment. It's, I don't think a lot of people will understand this. Yeah, let's do. Let's talk about the seed treatment because yeah. that, that adds the, the the value, right, to... yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, seed treatments, I've been a a proponent of seed treatments for a long, long time because what you do with a seed treatment situation is you take a tiny little seed and you actually apply the treatment on the coating of the seed. And as the seed grows into a plant, the insecticide, the neonic, moves through the tissue from the coating on the seed into the tissue of the plant. And therefore, it's there from the beginning. So if you have insect pests that attack those plants from the time they germinate, and they're just tiny little seedlings, when they're very, very vulnerable, they will be protected. It's certainly an advantage. The other thing is that when you utilize a seed treatment versus a foliar treatment where you're spraying a lot of product with water all over the crop and everywhere else... A seed treatment uses a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of active ingredient that would be the toxin. And so so it's advantageous in that way because the environmental impact is much reduced. And certainly the people applying these treatments uh, are much safer with a seed treatment treatment than a foliar application. Okay, so I want to hit that back and make sure I understand it. So... Prior to this ability to treat the seed, I guess if I all of a sudden saw a pest that was uh, threatening my crop, then I would have to go out and um, spray like a a foliage um, application, and that had a different set of environmental implications. Exactly. This way, pre-emergent, I can uh, coat it and uh, deal with the pest ahead of time. So it's almost an insurance policy for the farmer. It is an insurance policy, and that in itself makes it a difficult situation because uh, the whole whole entire seed treatment uh, industry is is a complicated one. A grower needs to buy treated seed 
in the year prior to planting. So by October of this year, for example, growers would be buying treated seed to plant in the spring of 2017. So it's really difficult to predict what kind of pests you're going to have in 2017. We don't have this kind of crystal ball, mm. although a lot of growers and pest management people wish they did. So it is an insurance policy. I see. Because you do have to buy it well in advance, and the cost of buying them is quite small uh, in terms of the total amount it would cost to put a plant in per hectare. Um, so... It's insurance, um, and it's difficult to understand how that fits within a pest management concept, but it's an important application technique uh, in terms of seed treatments, and we really need to figure out how to manage it better than we do because it's too valuable to lose. All right. Well, before we go, we'll talk about the science mm -hmm. uh, behind all of this. And again, but now let's turn and talk about bees a little okay. bit. Like I'm, mm -hmm. um, bees, what I, I'm talking about, honeybees typically in these studies, but it looks like wild bees come into this discussion, bumblebees. How, do, how, what, how, do, how should I think about bees in this discussion? Well, I would say that a lot of the information people hear about is focused on honeybees because they are, are domesticated honeybee that beekeepers have kept for thousands of years. And they're often associated with, with the pollination of, of cultivated crops, vegetable crops, fruit crops, any kind of crop that flowers, bees will be attracted to and, and are likely beneficial to, the, to that plant in some way, shape, or form. So the bulk of our information is focused on honeybees. But that's not to say that there aren't a lot of other bees out there that are really critically important to agriculture and lots of other ecosystems, not just agriculture, but natural ecosystems. When you go to Algonquin Park or some park and you look at the flowers blooming, you'll find bumblebees and other bees, bees other than honeybees. Not to get into too much science here, but the, the Latin name for honeybees is Apis mellifera. And so we call it an apis bee. And all the other bees are called non-apis bees, just to, to really divide this quite easily. The non-apis bees encompass bumblebees, leafcutter bees, orchard bees, stingless bees. There are a lot of bees out there that people just wouldn't even recognize because they don't all look like honeybees or bumblebees. I would say in terms of the non-apis bees, people would easily be able to identify a bumblebee. Okay, I already just want to see if yeah. I'm going to, two pathways of potential yeah. confusion in, in when for someone like myself that just kind of yeah. has a cursory look at this literature you've already yeah. hit on. One is that neonics, there's multiple types of neonics. Yeah. And when we talk about bees, there's multiple types of bees. And the exactly. tendency would be for, a reasonable tendency for people with limited time would be to homogenize these all yeah. together. But the science that we'll talk about it I think a little bit more, requires that you... Yeah. Dif the differentiation yeah. is critically important. And um, the bulk of research is on honeybees. Even when we talk about submission of information to regulatory agencies that 
look after pesticides to ensure they don't have an impact on on humans in the environment that would be like in, in Canada it would be the pest management regulatory agency in the US it would be the environmental protection agency those kind of regulatory agencies uh, in the past, most of the information to do with bee pollinators was submitted in terms of being represented by honeybees. But there's a lot of research that's been done now to show that different bees respond differently mm-hmm. to the same pesticide. And so now there's a thought that we need to look more widely when we're looking at new products that need to be registered, new pesticides that need to be registered, and look at their impact on other bees other than just honeybees. And so a lot of the work that I also do in my lab is focused on these non-apis bees because we've got lots of methodology for honeybees but virtually nothing for these other bees it's not so simple we can't take our techniques from honeybees and apply it to these other bees because they function in a very different way all right before we get into the relationship between the uh, neonics and um, honeybees i guess we'll Mm -hmm. be talking about let me just Step back and say, in terms of what we know about uh, bee colonies, that's the, mm-hmm. the most popular way it's described. Bee, where are we losing bee colonies? Are we growing bee colonies? First of all, I just ask two questions. One is, what is, what is really meant when we say uh, bee colonies? What are, what are people referring to? And second of all, in Canada and then maybe in Ontario, talk to me a little bit about how they've changed over time. Okay, the colony that they're talking about I don't know if if you've actually ever seen how beekeepers keep colonies. They have them in these white boxes yeah, that yeah. stack up. Every stack represents a colony of bees. Mm. And it's usually the first two boxes on the bottom that contain the the lifeblood of the colony. That's where the queen is and that's where the brood is. Any boxes above that are honey. Okay, so they separate them out. And so the beekeeper will extract those top boxes and take the honey off of them. So when we talk about a honeybee colony, it's that complete unit, complete functioning unit with a queen, a lot of workers, developing brood, and these honey boxes are super stacked on top. That's a colony. And is there variation in the population of a colony? Or are they typically a certain number? Or? It, they decrease to a... a they, they are overwintered by beekeepers. They have special overwintering techniques to keep them alive over the winter, but they're much smaller in the winter than mm-hmm. they are in the summer. In the summer, you can have up to 60,000 worker bees in a colony and a queen. And so in all fairness, in talking about bee losses, we generally talk about it in terms of colony numbers occasionally you get media articles that say 20 million bees have died well you need to divide that by 60,000 basically in the peak of your summer population to determine how many colonies you're talking about 20 million sounds amazing so colonies are the appropriate colonies appropriate all right so what do we know about bee colony loss in Canada and Ontario well, there's a lot of talk about a honeybee colony a dec- decline, but if you look at the statistics from Stats Canada, you'll actually see over time in Canadian bee populations, if we're talking colonies, that the number has 
continually risen, specifically in the last 10 years. There are occasional drops in number, but if you average that out over time, it's increasing. And it's really critically important to look at these increases over a long period of time, not one or two years, because you get really, you know, you get sudden drops and everyone panics. But in the whole scheme of things, it's it's uh, uh, increasing. Um, in Ontario, the same thing. In the United States, the same thing. So overall, we're not seeing massive decreases in honeybee colony numbers. But one statistic you will hear is overwintering losses. This is the way beekeepers determine and government agencies determine how well colonies have done. It's this overwintering loss. So you take the number of colonies you put into winter and the number that are still alive in the spring, Mm. And from that, you calculate overwintering losses. In Ontario, particularly for the last several years, overwintering losses have been around 35%, um, which is high. Typically, we would aim for an overwintering loss of between 10 to 15%. Um, if you look at the statistics provincially, Ontario continues to be an anomaly. Most of the other provinces are in this 10 to 15% overwintering loss range. Ontario, for some reason, higher. I don't, I can't really answer the question why that's happening, but it is a cause for concern for Ontario beekeepers. Well, that's a perfect segue into, I think, the next session. Mm-hmm. section. So Ontario uh, has regulations to reduce the amounts of neonics, and presumably one of their concerns is that maybe one reason why Ontario is, ex- is an exception is is because of neonics, and that's what I want to uh, maybe explore a little bit. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll ask a series of questions and we can fare it out, because one of the there's two terms that are used in the literature, throughout this literature, mm-hmm. that are kind of used differently. And so um, one is um, hazard, mm-hmm. and the other is risk. And you'll kind of see one, like I just read, I think one was that um, um, honeybees have been shown to be um, highly toxic, or so, sorry, neonics have been shown to be highly toxic to honeybees. Um, and, and it's so hazardous, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and then there's this issue of risk. Before we hop in, just abstractly, what is this distinction between hazard and risk or toxicity and risk, or is there one? And, and now we peel off the layers of the onion. Yeah. The complexity comes in, and this is a difficulty for people when they read headlines. Is there's, there's a mountain of information that you really need to understand. So hazard and risk are different. And I think often people lump them together, and they're totally different. In terms of long-term policy development by government, the concept of hazard and risk assessment, which is an accumulation of different types of information, both of those areas, both hazard and risk, need to be dealt with and uh, to develop a really strong uh, long-term valuable policy, science policy. Hazard uh, deals with the toxicity of the chemical or toxin you're dealing with, plus the intensity of the exposure, and that would be things like dose and duration. So if you increase the dose and, and, in, and or increase the duration, 
the two, if you look at these like as two circles, toxicity, intensity of exposure, if you look at them as two circles, if you increase dose and duration, those two circles overlap more. And where they overlap is the hazard. Okay? But risk is another circle overlaid on top of this. Risk involves the probability of exposure. It, you aren't, there, a honeybee is not 100% exposed to uh, a toxin all, all the time, 24-7. It's not going to happen. So you need to think of the realistic exposure in a field situation. How often will that bee be exposed to those potentially worst-case scenarios of toxin exposure? So that's a third circle of overlay. And where all three of those circles overlap, that is your risk. Okay? All right, let's, let's try to break this down into, um, you know, for some people that mm-hmm. won't be in this area, mm-hmm. um, that uh, an example that you tell me if this is a fair example. Okay. I'll just try to um, – uh, the uh, child Tylenol in my, um, mm-hmm. uh, in my cabinet is a hazard, but um, in taking – but children aren't um, – when it's stored properly, children aren't at risk. Yeah. Can we make that – is that yeah, kind of what true. we're getting at? Yeah. If, if that bottle is locked because usually they have child-proof uh, lids and is placed in an area where they can't get them, then the probability of exposure is zero. If they can get at them, though, there is a hazard – Because that Tylenol, if they eat too many of them like candies, then the dose and the duration is high, that the toxicity is there, that's a hazard. But you can eliminate that hazard by storing it properly. Okay, so let's use this as the spring load, and I'll just ask some questions. So um, what do we know about, and how do we know, I guess I'll ask both at the same time, Mm -hmm about the toxicity or hazardness, you can correct me, mm-hmm. about neonics, or if you want to get into a particular neonic, fine. But mm-hmm. I'll just start there at the extreme. How do we come to that knowledge, and what do, we, what do you think we know? Okay, so when we do, and, and we're really focusing on, on studies that are done in a toxicological framework here, and toxicology is complicated, but when we're looking at these kinds of experiments, we divide them into three different categories. And the first category we will call Tier 1 category. And these are the laboratory studies. These are studies where we would take a bee and we would expose them to a certain dose of the toxin over a certain period of time in a laboratory situation. So it's very artificial. The advantage of these laboratory studies is that it helps us determine if a compound is toxic at all to bees. Okay? And if there is toxicity, then we would, and it reaches a a trigger value, which are set out in the regulatory framework, it would may tell us that we have to do more studies. We need to clear these up. We need to dig deeper and fill in the knowledge gaps. So we would go to a Tier 2 study. And a Tier 2 study is a semi-field study. Um, it's moving more to a realistic realm. We'll call it quasi-realistic because it's outdoors. We plant a crop. We put a big screen tent over this flowering crop. It has to be a flowering crop to attack, attract the bees. 
And then we'll spray that crop in the tent with the chemical, the pesticide we're interested in. We put a small colony of bees in that tent. And here's the important factor and one of the main differences between your Tier 1 laboratory study and this Tier 2 study is the laboratory study focuses on an individual bee. But how do we know that bees live? What, what do we call bees? We call them social. They live together in large numbers. They live together in a colony. So truly, we need to assess the impact of these toxins on the colony, not just an individual bee, because these colonies can have 60,000 individuals. If they lose 10 or 15 or 20 bees, it's not going to impact that colony at all. But if something happens to that colony that really decimates the numbers, then the colony is lost. That's the living unit that we're interested in. So if we do these tests at the Tier 2 level, and at, those, at that experimental level, we get some indication of toxicity, and we reach the trigger values again, then it may tell us we have to do more studies. And we move to the Tier 3 studies. These are the large-scale field studies, totally realistic. The farmers grow out, go out, they plant their seeds as they normally would with the amount of chemical on them they normally would in the field, and you put the bees out in the field, and they're free-flying. There's no tent. So these experiments are extremely expensive. They're very variable, and it's terribly difficult to deal with a bee that may not want to stay in that field. If you're dealing with cattle, you can put a fence up and you can keep them there. Right. But with a bee, not so. So there are some difficulties with these studies. And our idea with these three tiers is that there's a lot of, there can be a lot of the Tier 1 lab studies and fewer and fewer of the Tier 2 and Tier 3 studies. Well, I mean, just, and that kind of makes sense to do the Tier 1 If there's no toxicity, there's no need to no do No need the to other. do any, any other and experiments. And they're the least expensive, too. Exactly. So from, okay, so what, what, do, what do we know from those Tier 1 studies about the relationship between neonics and honey? If that's well, a fair question. The, it's absolutely obvious from well-done Tier 1 laboratory studies that these neonics are toxic to honeybees. And it's not really surprising. Neonics are insecticides. Honeybees are insects. So having a sense of, having a, a, a confirmation of toxicity at this level, not surprising. But the really negative thing to do is base your policy just on these tier one studies. Sure, sure. a lot of people might, yeah. you know, it, a lot of people, but you're saying that there's a methodology that has to consider all three. Mm-hmm. But when I get to the conflicting, back to our kind of early theme, there yeah. can be these conflicting results, various quotes out there. One is that there can be two statements can be, you can find something in a tier one and not find something in a tier two. Or, or a tier, tier three. three, yeah. Um, I guess you can't find something in a tier two that's not a tier one. That makes sense. That, so that's it's, right. It's, it's great. Once you're at tier two and tier three, they've obviously found some toxicity in the in the first level. But what you need, all science, all science, um, at least biologically based science, has to be confirmed in the field. Every scientist knows that what they do in the lab has to be taken to a very realistic plane. And, and looked at and confirmed. In order to understand risk. 
to understand the risk. Risk, because, but we can establish toxicity. So let's go. So that's established. Mm-hmm. So what do we go? What are the second tier? And have there been so have there been a lot of the first tier studies? On a time? lot. Okay. In, the, in in the one paper, the PLOS one paper you referred to, it it, it I think it says over just over seventy percent of all the studies on neonics and honeybees are laboratory based tier one studies, and then there are. Um, a smaller group of the tier th- two studies and and fewer of the tier three studies. So just as I have indicated, uh, lots of lab, not so much large scale field. What are we finding as we move away from uh, the tier one or the toxicity studies as we move to the tier two and tier three? What would well ba- it- based on the research I've done and I've right. done a lot of the large scale tier three study. Um, is that what we're seeing in these laboratory studies is not being confirmed in the field. Not in terms of what we would call acute mortality of bees, and that means a massive loss of bees suddenly. Um, These large-scale field studies do look at bees over a period of time, but one of the questions that people are raising now is, what happens when bees are are exposed to a small amount of toxin over a very long period of time? Does it make them sick? Do they not fly the way they should? Do they not forage the way they should? Um, These are questions that um, I think in this PLOS One paper are discussed as being knowledge gaps. Mm -hmm. And so that's an area that we'll continue to explore. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the... um, from from your understanding of that broad literature, I mean, it's clearly mm-hmm. you're identifying as a knowledge gap. Do you have a sense of how the the small subset of tier three studies are, have come out? How are they consistent? Do you find colleagues kind of arguing with you? You know, as an economist, we're always arguing with yeah. each other about everything. So I don't know if it's the same in your field. Uh, do you, do- well, I, I don't think the people who do large scale studies uh, argue with each other because I think they typically find the same answers and they agree on the fact that what we're seeing in the, the laboratory studies doesn't pan out in the, the, the tier three studies. But the problem is that people who need to make decisions about how we move forward in terms of utilizing neonics and ag- ecosystems don't always consider the finding of these tier three studies. They just focus on the tier one studies which show toxicity and scare people, but they haven't looked at the risk assessment. What's the probability of those insects being in the crop and what residue levels are they exposed to when they are in the crop? Um, That's not looked at in a laboratory study. One aspect, and this is a nuance of the study, but maybe mm-hmm. we can shed some light on it, is um, there's a, sometimes a discussion of, of dusting in that planting oh, yeah. stage uh, with the, the treated seed and that there was some evidence that that had affected bees. What, what is that and what's that mean in this there, discussion? There's really two ways that bees can be exposed to neonics in agroecosystems, and especially when we're dealing with corn, for example. Um, most of the corn in Ontario is planted with a seed coating of neonics on it. And actually it's not, I'm in error, it's not a seed coating, it's a seed treatment. And this means there's a bit of a powder, colored powder coating containing the toxin that's placed on all the seeds. 
The corn is planted with very large pneumatic seed drills, and this means that a high blast of high-pressure air is injected through these machines to shoot the seeds into the soil. And when this happens, you get kind of scarification or dusting off of some of the powder coat of toxin that's around the outer part of the seed. And the exhaust system of these particular machines that you're using to plant shoots this exhaust contaminated exhaust dust up in the air. And what can potentially happen is it's windy, and it often is during planting, that this contaminated dust can be uh, blown into hedgerows in areas where there might be things like dandelions and other flowering plants blooming that bees will forage on, or it can get into the water and whatnot. There is a concern about that and, and a valid concern about that. And this first raised its ugly head in Ontario in 2012. And if you go back and look at the information, you'll see very high losses of bees around planting time that they associated with this particular contaminated dust-off situation. But over the, the subsequent years, they've really focused on mitigating or, or finding ways of managing this problem. And things like putting a fluency lubricant in, in the machine so that there's less scarification and there's less dust off. Um, modifying the baffles where the exhaust comes out so it shoots it down to the ground instead of up in the air. And then another thing that's being worked on is polymer seed coatings. So rather than a dusty coating, they'll actually seal the toxin in with a, a polymer sealant so there can be no dust off. And over time, since 2012, incidents associated with bee loss during planting have gone down substantially. So it's a really great example, I think, of how these situations can be mitigated if everyone works together for a common goal. The other side of the coin, and, and this is where you need to make the separation is the potential exposure that bees have when they're foraging on a flowering crop, like canola, uh, like any kind of plant that produces a flower. And those plants will produce pollen and a nectar. And as I mentioned, there's a potential of these neonics um, accumulating in the nectar and the pollen. And that's the interface for the, the bees. Most of my work is on the residues in nectar and pollen in flowering plants. That's my large-scale large studies focus on that. And um, you need to really clearly separate the two. And because Ontario is a major corn producer in Canada, our particular problems may be focused more on the dust-off problem in the spring rather than the residues in nectar and pollen. Um, one thing I'd like to add is that um, Western Canada grows a lot of canola, way more than you would see in Ontario. And canola is that bright yellow plant that you see blooming in the spring out in fields. It's really pretty to look at. And um, you'll see some of it on, on Ontario, not in the really southern part of Ontario, but certainly north of Guelph. Uh, if you go to the west, we're talking Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, massive amounts of canola, just yellow as far as the eye can see. They've been planting that crop, canola, 
with seeds treated with neonics for 15 years. And in all of those provinces, they don't have any problems with high, unusually high, overwintering losses of bees. And none of the beekeepers out there are concerned about um, bee losses in association with canola that's very much interrelated with this neonic seed treatment thing. So we're get, it's di- Canada's big, growing conditions are big, but I'm just bringing this up because mm-hmm. agriculture, you can't really generalize. Everything does not fit into the same hat. So given that, and mm-hmm. um, do you think, do you have any ideas of why this issue has been so contentious, why uh, the Ontario government has moved in a fairly decisive way? Um, do you have any sense, is the issue... Uh, the different ways that science um, is the complexity. Clearly, we've laid out this is a complex yeah. issue. There's just to kind of review, I think we've hit a couple you might add in. Mm-hmm. We have what neonic you're talking about, what kind of uh, bee you're describing, mm-hmm. the distinction between a set of hazard studies and risk studies that can coexist. Something can be hazardous and that can be true. Something can not be hazardous but not risky. That also yeah. can be true statements. Yeah. Is that what's going on here? Or do you have any other sense of um, why this issue has kind of emerged in the way it does? Has? Well, I think typically people feel very connected with honeybees. They feel that honeybees represent everything that's good and natural in the environment. And any kind of situation where you're, 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 you end up being focused on the demise of the honeybee in any way, I think it hits us where it hurts in terms of, oh, my God, the environment is not balanced anymore. And I think that's why anything to do with honeybees continually concerns the general public. And this is great. There's, uh, it's good to see people concerned about the environment. But on the other hand, if you want to be concerned about the environment, you have to read broadly and educate yourself on the topic rather than just believe everything that you hear. And we get a lot of information that's thrown at us. And, you know, the, the governments try to protect the environment. They try to protect everyone's interests. And sometimes decisions are made too quickly. I firmly believe that science policy or policy, agricultural policy, any kind of policy, has to be based on a real strong foundation of science and not just the little body of science you choose to focus on, but all that's available, the complete story. And this doesn't always happen. Well, I hope that this uh, Fair Talk, if it does anything, inspires the people that listen to this um, Fair Talk to uh, check out this issue more thoroughly, to mm-hmm. challenge the ideas that you've heard here, look into the literature, and read more. I mean, I think that's what, at, a, at the university, we strive to encourage our students, and we also strive to well, encourage this audience to I, do that. I would, I would say that it's important to have an opinion, but your opinion better be an educated one. I think that's a perfect way to end this Fair Talk. Dr. Cynthia Scott Dupree, thank you very much for joining us for a very interesting Fair Talk. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts. 